the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Brought to you by Guerrilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Hey, folks, greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Great to be back again and uh, great to have Vincent Heringer on the show. How are you, Vincent? I'm very well. I'm very Easterized. Excellent. Excellent. I hope it was a good a goodie. Uh, did you have any hot cross buns, Paul? Did you did you manage to get a break? Yeah, I got a few a few days um, unplugged, sort of. A few it's hot cross tr- buns. Tricky, I didn't it's have any Easter eggs, I don't think. Oh, actually, no, no I did. There was one which my son rejected, uh, <laughs> and uh, and so I got I got that one. Excellent. Yeah. Oh, well, well, here we are. We're back in the world of the living, but um, it was um, it was nice to have a break, wasn't it? Yeah. Now this week. It sort of has has landed quite conveniently that um, there's quite a few topics that uh, that really cross into your areas of expertise. But maybe you can remind uh, those that are listening or watching the New Zealand Tech Podcast uh, where you fit into this uh, big wide world of uh, media and podcasts and and other things, Vincent. Hmm. Oh, well, thank you. Um, well, thanks for having me on the show, Paul. It's always um, nice. I. I have a thin claim to being a technology expert, only having written about it for many years as a journalist, as a, uh, a journalist and as a publisher of magazines such as Ideologue, and then also having um, laddered the, you know, sort of in these last days, being a, a PR and a comms consultant to lots of technology companies and a venture capital fund called Punakaiki Fund. Uh, and then also um, do my own podcast, which is on your platform, Paul. It's called This Climate Business, and that's all about climate, climate tech, the solutions to climate change I'm very interested in. So I end up talking to a lot of technologists about uh, climate solutions, and I'm quite interested these days in food because I've started a food blog called The Feed, and uh, that's kind of about the intersection of food, technology, and sustainability all coming together. So I... I do not claim to be a technologist, but I'm highly engaged. Yeah. Oh, look, it's it's always fascinating to talk with you, and always in, enjoy uh, learning from your your opinions. And uh, yeah, we've certainly landed on some interesting uh, news and and topics to delve into the, this week. The the first one is this company, uh, Helios uh, Energy, a new um, energy developer here in New Zealand. Uh, who have some pretty interesting things uh, coming down the pike in our direction. Um, a $1.3 billion investment into, uh, into solar. And uh, a big name from, from Google, Urs Holtze, who uh, recently moved to New Zealand. And in fact, that sparked a, a, little, a little bit of controversy uh when when he moved here during this uh covid window and uh i think got a little bit of uh flack uh for his move to work remotely in in new hmm. zealand when uh, google wasn't necessarily encouraging um exactly the same of their other employees but uh i think there's uh there is a sort of certain level of uh, benefit you get as a senior exec in a in a large firm who's been there for a couple of decades um that they you know probably uh you know a bit more flexible would be uh would be my guess uh on his front if that's not something they're encouraging all their 
all their people to do. But um, what can you tell us about this since it's, it's very much your your area? Did it mm. catch your well, attention? <clears throat> I leave the politics of um, you know people getting preferential uh, citizenship, uh, Peter Thiel and such like, um, you know, one rule for all and all that. But um, in this case, uh, happy outcome for New Zealand because uh, solar is desperately needed in New Zealand. You know, we've got we have an amazing story around sustainable energy. We have at at our peak, we will be eighty six percent renewable on any on any day, which is a fantastic number internationally. But that last twelve percent, fourteen percent, Paul is proving to be very expensive. If we want to get to one hundred percent renewable electricity, um, that last twelve to fourteen percent is is very expensive and difficult, and so it needs lots of answers, including solar. And um, this company is promising to install eight, uh, 1.8 terab- uh, terawatts of power, which is a huge amount. That's 4% of the New Zealand energy use, which is just a, a humongous amount um, of energy. And at the moment, New Zealand produces only about 1% out of solar. So you know that's going to be more, more than a quadrupling of New Zealand solar output. They haven't committed where these solar farms are going to go, so that will be kind of interesting. And they, they have said South Island, North Island, so um, I guess look out for those. But um, I, I can only see upside with this interloper coming to New Zealand. Good on them. Bring yeah, it. Yeah, look, I think it's, you know, it's really, really exciting, as you say, that, um, you know, getting getting us to, to 100% renewable energy is not necessarily a super uh, easy or affordable thing. And, you know, you you look at how we've got there. Well, it, you know, it's been over a very, very long, uh, you know, period of time. For instance, the the hydro that we have uh, was built really in, a, in another age. Mm. And uh, getting more hydro seems uh, seems you know reasonably unlikely at this stage. Uh, possibly some sort of you know some changes on the hydro front. Well, there is the Onslow Dam project, which is being looked at, which is this pumpable renewable system where at low energy consumption the pump will be used to replenish the the upper part of the lake, and then in high energy times uh, when energy costs are high, the turbines will flow as it flows down. That's quite a good idea. It's eye-wateringly expensive, though. You know, we're talking billions and billions of dollars to build such a thing in a long time. Whereas, you know, incredibly boring fact, um, Paul, we actually don't need more energy sources if we could save what the what ECA, the Energy Efficiency Authority, are telling us could be saved just by being more efficient, having smarter appliances, uh, managing the load better, uh, we actually could reduce the need for building this additional generation resource uh, just by being smarter with what we've got and less waste. You know, there's a huge amount of waste that just happens on a daily basis. Although I did, um, there was a TED interview over the weekend with uh, with Elon Musk, and uh, it's always interesting the sorts of numbers that he uh he turns out but one number that he shared as we we move away from uh you know fossil fuels and in all its varying forms what i took away was a a suggestion that we may need two to three times as much electricity as what we use today once we if you know if we move to electric planes and trucks and just Mm. 
absolutely everything uh, mm. that that's actually going to be quite a big deal. So I don't know whether that's whether that's uh, you know quite true on the on the electric front, and I'm sure it will vary in different markets in terms of you know how, how much uh, you know transport it is, and I think that covers everything down to ships and so on, mm. Um, mm. which which might well have. Um, um, you know, slightly different approaches to uh, to how they're they're powered in the in the in the future. Well, I think energy is a little bit like data. You consistently underestimate how much you need. And you know, there was a time when undersea cables were thought sufficient to carry. Um, you know, I, I, w- I won't know the the metric, but um, you know, forty x was enough. Well, it turns out, you know, we need four thousand x to to carry all the amount of information flow that's you know going over the Atlantic. Energy is going to be the same. Rethink X, the consultancy, the sort of futurist consultancies, they they say energy is going to be like data. It's going to drive down to the price of zero to the effect of a kind of, you know, almost zero where energy will be effectively free because there will be so much generation done um, sort of at a distributed level, whether it's solar or wind or geothermal or nuclear or whatever. But, you know, the price of energy is going to fall to the point like data of being zero. And that will create an explosion, a kind of manufacturing and a creative explosion because, you know, the the cost of making things, so much of it is in the energy. Uh, so, you know, it's a really interesting report if anyone wants to. Can we put that up, um, a link to that? That's we can the, certainly um, put that up in the, in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Rethink X, they've done also um, a very, very good one on the future of uh, meat, which I think could be one of the topics we could segue to, Paul. We could. We could. We could. There is a bit of a move afoot to see more meatless meat in the New Zealand market, uh, because we've had Impossible have, uh, you know, I guess formally launched into New Zealand, uh, at least through now through the supermarket chain. So mm. the Impossible Burger, uh, many will will remember it being uh, initially made available to New Zealand audiences on um, Air New Zealand, Air New Zealand. flights right. um, between New Zealand and, and North America, which is, I think. Uh, Probably where I, uh, you know, first came across it, mm-hmm. um, and of course, there's a whole lot of other brands other than other than Impossible, but they sort of seem to have have had the the lion's share of media attention over the last uh, last few years. So we've got that going on, um, and then uh, alongside that, um, there there's been a call for reviewing our regulation in New Zealand as it relates to and this is not uh, information technology, but the ge- genetically modified uh, tech uh, regulation in New Zealand, where uh, GM uh, free has sort of become part of the, mm. the New Zealand brand. But there are, there are certainly some that are that are saying, "Hey, this is going to uh, hold us back in uh, in the creation of um, food in the in the future." Mm. Oh, absolutely, and that's not just food. So, well, what should we tackle first? Let's talk about GMOs. So, the the, um, the I think it's the Productivity Commission has asked for this to be reviewed because you may remember, if you cast your mind back some decades, New Zealand reviewed GMOs and uh, really put a massive restriction on what could be done uh, in terms of research, but also commercialization. So, it's, so very strict rules around GMO. A use and production in New Zealand, and it's 
it's from a research point of view, it's really thwarted um, our ability to innovate in that space. But also there are um, there are some quite big implications for the lack of GMOs. And you think, for instance, and in some of the applications of pest management. So, you know, we are overwhelmed by possums and rats and stoats and wildcats in New Zealand, which are just absolutely devastating our native flora and fauna. The ability to use genetically modified organisms to control our pest populations is a real, um, it's an exciting future, uh, but has not been fully explored. But, you know, lots of other areas, food, medicines, um, health, agriculture, you think about the methane problem we have in New Zealand, you know, at least one of the solutions to that is going to be some sort of modified um, ruminant, some sort of modified cattle beast. And the difference, um, Paul, these days is that the GMOs of today are so much safer and, and quite different. So the gene editing techniques, particularly CRISPR, um, that's, the, um, that's the acronym CRISPR. It stands for a, a series of words I can't quite remember, but it's a different way and it's a safer way um, of producing GMOs. So there's much less risk of, you know, there was all that sort of um, crazy uh, Frankenstein food, Franken food, I think it was called um, anxiety. But I, I think that's past now. And so, yes, time for us to review way over time. Okay, well, that's that's exciting. And um, do you know, is the is the political appetite there for change? Is this something that sort of is quite broadly accepted that uh, the, the risks associated with genetically modified um, you know, organisms is uh, much lower or, or near non-existent now? Mm, I, I've seen no research on this, so I'm, this is complete idle speculation, but yeah. I, I think that the majority of people wouldn't give a damn and it will become used by maybe by the Green Party as an election thing and they will bring up the sort of specter of frankenfood and other kind of monstrous objections. I think the science now is pretty clear and hasn't it been interesting during COVID to see the influence and the respect that science and medicine has been uh, accorded, you know, which is, which is apart from a very, very nutty minority, um, New Zealand has been a pro-science, pro-vaccine country. And I suspect that that same level of good quality sensible thinking and practice is going to go into this i'd hope so all right well we have all sorts of listeners with all sorts of opinions on that i'm sure uh, um some of them aren't entirely nutty but uh, might might not entirely agree with you there <laughs> so yeah so we might might be up for some some big changes and this um move in terms of meat that isn't uh, isn't meat mm. Uh, yes, um, uh, it's a very exciting future. So um, we're early stages. And there are three types of kind of alternative meat. There's plant-based, which is pretty well established, right? You know, there's you go into most supermarkets, you can get plant-based protein alternatives. Sun-fed, for instance, to a you know fantastic chicken alternative. Um, that's pretty established. Um, that's just extracting protein out of out of plants, often pea or soy. Um, are the options there. Um, the next level is this, uh, you know, what you um, we're seeing with Impossible Foods, and that's um, that's where it's kind of got a slightly, um, they use a plant-based, then they introduce a molecule called heme, which they've developed to 
create that kind of blood effect. So it's a, a juice. It creates a juiciness in the in the burger. Um, that that is actually GMO. It's produced in a, by a bacteria that will express the heme molecule, and they um, they put that in a I, I think in a bioreactor and make these patties that are plant-based protein with the heme molecule kind of inserted. And then the next level, which is the which is Probably the most exciting is cultured meat or cultured protein, sometimes called lab-based protein, and that's that's where GMOs are quite an important technology to use, um, and that's where you can effectively grow protein muscle in a lab on a substrate, and instead of having to slaughter a whole beast, you can just grow the steak. And this can be done at the lab. You've probably seen videos of it, um, but pretty pricey, right? At, at, the at the moment, yeah. Now we're yeah. we're talking about cutting edge technology, right? And, yeah. and early days. It's, it's early days, and you know we we we're not even at the Model T, uh, you know, phase of this. This is this is really early days tech tech. But it's been it it can be done. It's done in the lab, um, and it's done at small scale. But finless fish uh, is uh, uh, they're an outfit in I think they are in the states that they are making they might be Israeli but they're making fish protein there uh, as a um, uh, there's egg alternatives there are milk alternatives there are meat alternatives using this cultured meat and New Zealand has a very good opportunity through the work of the likes of plant and food to pioneer this space particularly fish uh, if you think about great New Zealand tasting fish, hapuka or terakee or snapper, being able to grow that kind of basically flesh on a substrate without having to farm or kill a fish is pretty exciting. So, yeah, I think the, 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 as a tech, you know, awesome, bring it on. It'll, it'll, there'll be consequences we haven't thought about, and one of them is packaging, you know. There's just so much packaging that has to happen with and, and processing with some of these products. Um, so, um, you know, there will, there will be some consequences, but, um, you know, we need to feed the world and we need to do it sustainably, Paul. We grow some uh, some pretty good uh, beef and lamb and fish around New Zealand as well, right? So uh, that's that's probably not, uh, not going to be disappearing anytime soon. Uh, I, I guess we, we end up with, a market where over, over time that becomes even more uh, premium in terms of what gets what gets grown here in mm. terms of the prices and mm. and uh, and so on. We we don't seem to have maybe been impacted, uh, and and you might correct me on this, as much as uh, I I had thought in terms of the uh, the old food miles um, and how far. Our food has to travel to get to export markets. That doesn't seem to get as much attention these days. Um, any anything you can fill us in on there? I've just out of out of curiosity, and and certainly you know we've we've talked a lot about weightless exports as a country, and that that's certainly something that we you know we're very interested in in doing. But mm. yeah, is there is there a, a lot of interest in in food miles these days? There, there isn't. Um... There should be, but there isn't. But at least in New Zealand's case, that was fairly well debunked by an output called the AERU, the Agribusiness Economic Research Unit, in 2012, I think it is. They did a major study into emissions of New Zealand primary produce, including the shipping. So, you know, all the embedded energy costs of right. production, plus the shipping and the distribution to supermarkets, and found even still 
by comparison with European competitors, a um, New Zealand lamb or butter or steak um, had lower emissions profile than a European-based farm. And that was that was a, a breakthrough moment for New Zealand. It was done by a woman called Carolyn Saunders, Professor Carolyn Saunders. And that she, that she's actually gone on to do some really interesting work to help New Zealand primary produce establish itself as this sort of sustainable alternative, you know, to um, uh, to Northern Hemisphere, particularly American and Chinese practices, which are, by our standards, appalling and should be put out. Those feedlots that you see on a mass scale in the States are diabolical. And, um, you know, if that is the future of farming, then bring on the, the impossible foods. But actually, New Zealand has a really good story to tell around ethics, sustainability, uh, struggling with the water quality. Uh, we know that, uh, but it's a journey. Cool. Oh, thanks for thanks for that. That was um, yeah something I I wasn't too uh, wasn't too sure about. I'm sure there'll be others in the in the same boat. Now we must jump on to talk about Twitter and what on earth is going on with <laughs> Musk Twitter. What does it mean for uh, for those of us that use Twitter? Does it have a future? Is Musk going to kill it off, make it better, uh, or is this uh, poison pill that we? Uh, that we hear uh, that the the board of uh, of Twitter has uh, has put into uh, into play to make it much less practical for somebody to acquire the whole thing. What's what's your view, uh, Vincent? I know you've uh, you've been a Twitter user for uh, probably at least as long as I have, but quite possibly longer. So, uh... um, 2014, I started. I, I like Twitter. It's it's good fun. I know that um, people have get trolled and they have bad experiences on Twitter. I've, I've, I've always managed to, um, you know, kind of, it's, it's entertainment for me. I do actually learn a few things and I've met some interesting people. But um, I, I guess, um, you know, for me, the, uh, the ownership there's two aspects to this. The, the, the ownership matters. Ownership of media matters um, because media has a disproportionate effect uh, of influence um, in society. And so the ethics and the morals and the integrity and the ambition of the person that owns it or the organisation that owns it, I, I think, sets standards internally. To the media, and so I think that matters. So I, I actually think media is unusual in that it is traditional media is regulated quite highly for um, defamation, for uh, standards, for facts, and so on. And then I know that that may seem laughable in our age of um, kind of disinformation. But the other thing about social, so ownership matters. So um, sh should he be an owner? Well, well, that's a question for us to discuss in a minute. But the other thing with social is that it's not controlled like media, right? So it doesn't have the same, it doesn't operate in the same regulatory framework that a publisher should do. So it's not accountable for the lies, for the disinformation, for the hurt, for the hate speech that goes on on the platform. And they will try to pretend all of them are the same. Um, they will try to pretend to, um, you know, control hate speech and so on, but they are not accountable like a newspaper or a radio station or indeed as you are, Paul, as a podcast publisher. 
And if I was to slander somebody on the show, you could be sued for slander um, through um, defamation laws. And that is that is the right thing to do. Um, but social media, because of the original instruction, they got away with being treated as a carrier rather than a publisher, um, has has meant that we've, you know, we live in this age of disinformation amplified by social media. Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because it, there there is a fair bit of variation on that front around the world too, and certainly in some parts of the world, you can you know absolutely get into a lot of uh, a lot of drama, shall we say, uh, for for slandering people through a social media channel, and we've even heard in in, in some situations of people being held to account for liking something on social media uh so it's it is quite uh you know quite a fascinating uh world is, is social media well um, I, we, he hasn't said what he wants to do with twitter has he has he, he sort of hinted like i've just got a quote here it has extraordinary potential i will unlock it what what does that mean that's fascinating, isn't it? Well, he has done a he has done a couple of uh, surveys, some some straw polls, um, but because Elon has a lot of followers, that means he's had quite a big response to his surveys. So he, you know, he asked a question around free speech and how Twitter, you know, was in terms of giving people free speech. He did another poll asking about the option to edit tweets of how much of uh, interest that would be to people. So those probably give a little bit of a, an indication of things that interest him, but uh, there, there certainly could be a whole lot more in there. And um, he, yeah, he also shared uh, recently on Twitter a screenshot of something from... YouGov and The Economist uh, in terms of which media organizations are trusted more um, by, and this was very much a US thing, so I was referring to Democrats uh, and Republicans and, and how much they trust their uh, uh-huh. Uh, their media, and it was absolutely, you know, fascinating. Um, the Weather Channel kind of came uh, came <laughs> came came up the top, uh, even though we we all know that uh, predicting weather, although it is a is a science, uh, is not something that's uh, uh, necessarily perfect every time. And and it kind of seemed to go uh, seemed to go downhill from uh, from there. So I found mm. that one um, that one quite. Uh, quite fascinating but i think the answer to that paul is not all right there are no rules just go for it agree uh, the, the answer is actually the rules possibly are broken and we need to go try harder to win back that public trust right and if you look at the the record of this guy he he publishes vaccine disinformation he has set his troll army onto people he doesn't like he's used twitter with absolute reckless uh, abandoned to boost and then destroy crypto, um, you know, various currencies. Um, he, he was actually found of securities fraud in 2018 on account of um, talking up Tesla stock. Uh, you know, I think he's a genius, right? He he is no doubt about him being in, an extraordinary human being. 
but he is human and he's far from he, he, he's human and and he's one of the richest men if not the richest man in the world he is not the right person to own twitter yeah look i i don't know what is the right approach for you know running and owning these sorts of platforms and i think we've probably discussed it in the past there's there's a level to which when a platform gets as big as twitter or facebook or TikTok, <laughs> LinkedIn, and then gets used for political purposes, you realize there's an, there's a huge element to these platforms of them having value from a public service perspective. Mm. But of course, they're not owned by, or they're certainly not, you know, not controlled uh, entirely by the, by the general um, populace. Mm. And of course, everyone has different you know, feelings and values. And, and so, you know, when Elon did that, uh, did that survey and I'm scrolling through now, um, just to see if I can uh, see that particular uh, one amongst uh, all, all uh, his other bits and pieces in the, uh, the, the Twitter sphere, the question was free speech or the comment was free speech is essential to a functioning democracy. Do you believe Twitter rigorously adheres to this principle? Uh, of which seventy point four percent said uh, said no. Hmm. So you can see that's kind of a direction that uh, that he he's coming from. But as you've pointed out, the the sort of stuff that uh, that he, that he shares is uh, can be fairly uh, fairly controversial and uh, not with always steering people in the right direction. With uh, every no, exactly. With, with every right comes a responsibility, and I think that that's what he's not prepared to acknowledge and. and Seventy-four percent of tech bros agree with him. Well, what did he do? That is not democracy, and it's not representative of the community. No, well, I think it, it's reflection. It's a reflection of those that follow him, right? Um, pro- probably predominantly, mm. uh, more, more, more than anything else. Um, Turns out my followers agree with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. never knew. Anyway, <laughs> let's move on from Elon Musk. Stick, stick to cars and rockets. Um. Yeah, look, there's um, there's a few other interesting things we can uh, we can delve into. Um, a big crypto heist uh, in in the last few weeks has uh, has started getting well. It's had it's had a bit of attention al- already, and uh, this is the uh, Axel Infinity's uh, six hundred and twenty five uh, million. Uh, this is US dollars uh, crypto heist and. Mm. Um, the the most sort of recent things that we're uh, we're hearing is that um, this may may indeed have uh, been carried out by um, the North Korean uh, Lazarus uh, group, who mm. have been uh, linked to some past uh, scenarios. I think uh, Sony getting hacked in in the past, but uh, mm. if if it is indeed the Lazarus group, then, uh, I mean, this is uh, just an insanely uh, large amount of crypto to, uh, to, to get stolen. And it's a little bit hard to, uh, to get your head around the scenario when we, there, there is that sort of feeling that we're moving uh, into a world where uh, cryptocurrencies are, you know, more and more, uh, you know, a day-to-day thing. In fact, um, yeah, I caught up with uh, with with a with a friend uh, today, and um, he uh, he needed a little gadget that uh, that I I ha- happened to have um, spare 
And uh, he said, oh, look, shall I just uh, send that to you in crypto? And <laughs> and uh, and, he, and he did. And did you, um, did you accept it? Was it, and, um, was it legal tender at, um, at Gorilla Tech? Um, I, I, I hope so. Um, I, we didn't, uh, we didn't, uh, break any, uh, any laws in the, in the process, but, um, can you explain to me how this heist worked? So North Korea is, if, am I reading it right? That Lazarus group has stolen $615 million worth of crypto from the players or from the game maker or can you explain it? Yeah, so um, my my understanding in in this case, um, yeah, is from a Ronin uh, network. They were af- effectively storing a lot of you know crypto there for their players, or at least had had access uh, to it, hmm. and that uh, that authority. So yeah, it worked worked out to be um, a mix of Ethereum. Uh, and one which um, is directly linked to the the US dollar uh, called USDC. Now, most of it was Ethereum, five hundred ninety-seven million US dollars worth, and uh, and then a bit over uh, a bit over twenty-five uh, million of the USDC, and possibly one or two others were were in there as well to um, mm. to make up the the, the balance. And the, um, has it been discussed what the motivation was? Was it simply a that they need money because obviously they, you know, they are under huge sanctions and desperate for money to up, uh, sustain the, you know, their shambolic economy? Um, was that the motivation, um, or was it some sort of political statement? Do you think? You know, we never know the the full story of what goes on behind the scenes because North Korea is is unlikely to sort of you know put out a press release and say, "Hey, hey, this was us, you losers. We've uh, we've 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 taken your uh, your your crypto." Uh, because yeah, if I, I guess uh, if that were to happen, then there would probably be some harsher uh, harsher consequences. So mm-hmm. you know, they're unlikely to uh, to ever. Uh, admit to it but look I, you know i think if you if you look at uh certain countries they are a little bit more relaxed about making uh making financial uh gains through uh cyber criminal uh activities and so we we see these uh state state sponsored mm. um attacks uh of of this sort of nature but mm. I think there is a, a level to which you know when you when you look at North Korea and you look at the financial uh, struggles uh, they have uh, as uh, a dictatorship and a um, communist nation, uh, it's it's pretty tough. So and and there's usually you know a range of sanctions against them because of their mm. uh, act- activities. Uh, with uh, with nuclear weaponry and so on, so I don't think this sort of thing's going to stop. They will they will continue putting in a lot of resources, uh, and the these sorts of attacks until we can maybe address some of those challenges of uh, that relate to cryptocurrencies and and things that are that are based around uh, the blockchain, like NFTs. 
uh, where as individuals and as organizations that they talk about uh, cryptocurrency makes you your own bank. Well, that has some inherent risks to it. And that's really what we see uh, here and what we've seen with, uh, with, with past uh, attacks and, uh, and funds stolen from, um, you know, from varying Mm. Uh, crypto wallets in in the past so yeah unfortunately i think it, it's going to continue probably for some time to come but i would like to think that these sorts of things uh the risks are going to uh are going to drop off a lot more over over the next few years because i i don't think crypto is about to uh disappear etc um probably the this is one of the things that that really slows it down uh, because this really hurts the credibility of you know blockchain and and, and cryptocurrencies, and uh, you know people aren't going to feel so confident when they they hear about these uh, situations happening. Unfortunately, or fortunately, mm. depending on which side you you come from and whether you think uh, you know uh, crypto is the way of the way of the future. Um, but you know we we are expecting to see it become more and more normalised. Um, you know going forwards. Did you listen to the BBC series, uh, the, the Lazarus Heist? There was a pod, uh, was a, a radio series turned into a podcast series. I do remember that. Um, I certainly didn't didn't listen to all of it. I might have caught a little bit of it. Yeah, mm, that's so good. It just was a a great whodunit piece yep. of journalism. Um, yeah, you know, and uh, exposing all you know all these kind of this shady network of connections that North Korea has in China, but also in Southeast Asia, um, connected too to their um, their activities and and knocking off people. Um, so they you know they quietly assassinate quite a few people around the world, and um, uh, it, it, it was a little glimpse into a, a very sort of. I don't know, uh, James Bondish kind of world, mm, mm. but probably without the same uh, glamour. I would be uh, imagining somewhat, somewhat different. Only the uh, only Kim Jong Il gets to have the martini. <laughs> uh, now the other topic, and we had talked a little bit about this um, around drones and the usage in the uh, the Russia. Ukraine uh, war, and um, we have seen uh, videos, uh, you know, over recent years of uh, killer robots of varying varying forms. Uh, mm. There was one that sort of did, did the rounds uh, a couple of, of years or or so uh, back that uh, was was not looking particularly nice of a um, you know automatic weapon being fired by a robot. Uh, but uh, last week in AI had uh, had quite an interesting piece up um, just over the weekend. They started out with this, this quote, artificial intelligence is the future, not only for Russia, but for all mankind. It comes with colossal opportunities, but also threats that are difficult to predict. Whoever becomes the leader in the sphere will become the ruler of the world. And that's actually a quote from 2017 from Vladimir Putin. Hmm. Uh, quite concerning when you realize that uh, that's that's his thinking on this on this matter. And so well, it's not that concerning given just how um, inadequate their invasion has proven to be, right? 
yeah, so so far there has also been these uh, kamikaze uh, drones, which have been admittedly have been used by um, you know by both sides. This article covers off uh, an autonomous. Uh, kamikaze drone, I believe, from uh, Kalashnikov, who uh, many will uh, will know for their uh, automatic uh, weapons, mm. and sort of goes into the concerns of really handing over um, all aspects of of killing to an AI system. So today, mm. when when we you know look at, for instance, American military drones and other things there's usually quite a human element that's involved. There might be elements of artificial intelligence in the mix, but really what what this article uh, is delving into is a a future whereby really it just gets handed off to the technology to make make its own decisions around who to take out and who uh, uh, who not to hit and so on. Uh, mm. Rather than that human element being being in there, and this to me seems like the sort of thing where you know, legislation uh, at a at a global level uh, will need to be enacted at, at some point in time. Otherwise, you just have a country that can make a lot of robots can basically uh, rule rule the world by putting enough of these autonomous things. Uh, and into play not saying that that can't happen with there being a human element as well but uh that sort of probably takes it next level you got a slightly different take on it paul and i i share your concern for these killer robots or loitering robots or loitering drones as they call them absolutely and we're right to worry about the technology we're right to worry about any military technology and a couple of slightly different tangential thoughts. One is, um, you know, if we thought that drones and AI was bad, wait till you meet humans. Humans are terrible. <laughs> and we, as a species, are responsible for the most diabolical crimes against each other and against our environment. And uh, I, I don't think that we should have any more fear of drones than we already have of humans. And in the end, drones are the tools of the humans, right? So we already live with the terror of human cruelty uh, and a lust for power. So let's get some perspective here. This is not the end of time. You know, this is just another chapter in, um, in a sad history of violence against each other and against our planet. So, you know, there's that to consider. Um and it's not like we're leaving the golden age to enter something else. You know, we're, we're, we're leaving a period of, of terrible violence and the 20th century was the bloodiest century so far. So, you know, let's not to be too starry-eyed about it. The, the second thing, Paul, is um, this is an arms race, right? So for every investment that North Korea and Russia and China make in this space, America, the UK, the EU... Uh, uh, also making and there is this kind of mutually assured destruction aspect to that that could provide if you have enough whiskies a certain comfort that we're all not going to die horribly at the arms of a kamikaze robot let's hope not let's hope not vincent <laughs>
I like what they're called, lethal autonomous weapon systems laws. Yeah, they, and these are the ones, as as you um, highlighted, that uh, basically wander around on their own, sort of looking for trouble, you could say, or looking mm. for mm. Uh, mm. yeah particular types of uh, targets. Uh, yeah, mm. loitering is um, yeah was was the word you used part of the uh, description, and I guess that that's part of the um, the acronym laws isn't it um mm. yeah mm. quite uh quite fascinating well look i think for for me one thing i appreciate is that in new zealand we're generally been in a pretty pretty uh safe position but i know that there are you know people with with family uh you know over in ukraine at the moment and friends and and colleagues and so on. So, um, you know, although it's it's a distance from where we're sitting, it's, uh, it's still a pretty pretty challenging time, and I certainly hope it uh, comes to an end um, reasonably swiftly without mm. too much too much more. It's drama. an awful but, uh, it's an awful war, isn't it? And I I, I don't share your optimism. I, I don't think it will. I don't think it's going to end well. The the other thing about uh, this sort of thought, Paul is the, you know, New Zealand's surrounded by the biggest moat in the world, which provides a certain amount of comfort for us and that we don't get, you know, a lot of invaders to our shores, um, although Māori might have a different point of view on that. Um, but, and the Moa certainly would, um, I, I reckon what we could be looking at with these remote drones and the kind of, you know, the age of the inter inter continental missile has made it much more possible for countries to invade without actually being there and i wonder if there's a scenario in which a country that's largely empty a huge food producer a lovely place to be actually could become quite a lovely place of dirt to own if you were some crazed north korean or imagine if you know closer to home indonesia was was to turn toxic New Zealand and Australia would look like quite a nice place to send people to live and farm and exploit for its open spaces. In that case, then these tools become so much more concerning for New Zealand, I think, because of the ability to control them remotely from, I'm just picking Jakarta and I'm not trying to, you know, pick on a, a country, but just imagine that scenario. It's not that ludicrous. Sure. And this this becomes the extension of the working from home, doesn't it? It's sort of walk from home, right? <laughs> Invading from home. Yeah. What did you do today, um, darling? Well, I went to my bedroom and I I took over Taranaki. Hmm. Well, it's yeah, and and you know, to a degree, this is what already happens, right? The the US drone pilots, uh, you know, they're not necessarily you know, super close to where the activity mm. is, is going on. Mm. Uh, and, yeah, the more you hand over to the AI, uh, then the less involved that you have to be. And I think mm -hmm. that, that, that's where there's, you know, the, the guilt, the ability to sort of challenge things. Once you hand it over to the AI, mm -hmm. um, then then that's kind of out of sight, out of mind. And, uh, and mm. you know, you possibly end up with a with – a, algorithms that maybe are a lot darker um than than we might end up having otherwise but uh, 
Yeah, uh, but we shouldn't fear these things because they probably won't. They probably won't uh, happen as as bad as uh, as what we can imagine. Um, but you know, hopefully these these thoughts and discussions do do stir stir us to you know at least give some consideration to um, you know how we get the best results out of these uh, these technologies and how we uh, um, you know address things where they need to be addressed with uh, with legislation, be that uh, social media. And the, the harm that social media can cause, or be it uh, AI-powered uh, weaponry. Quite agree. Oh, can we talk about e-bikes just quickly? Oh yes, we were going to try and squeeze in a, a little mention about um, e-bikes, and um, that the there was uh, some media coverage around uh, e-bikes, uh, e-bike injuries uh, being on the rise. Well, this is a study in the. In Netherlands, which is famous, of course, for its cycleways and its cycle use, and they found that uh, e-bike riders were 1.6 times more likely to end up in hospital than ordinary push bike riders. And um, you know, no surprise, it turns out the the people to blame, or the thing to blame, are the riders. And um, people again, it's all down it, to the people. It's, it's people and people and tools. You see, what what we're doing is we are just we are getting beyond ourselves, Paul, with these things that we create. And it's the old rights and responsibilities thing again, isn't it? You know, I could ride down the cycle path at 41 kilometres quite comfortably because that's what my e-bike does. When I cycle to your studio, Paul, I blast down that cycle path. But um, And so a very simple mistake that might help me just, you know, land on the grass ordinarily on a push bike would actually be quite catastrophic for me at 41Ks. And so this technology is just this amplifier of human capability, isn't it? For good or for evil. Yeah, look, on the on the flip side, we've seen airbags on motorbikes and so on. So, you know, there there is an ability to to use technology both to increase risk but also to reduce it. So reduce risk. I would I would like to see that we get a good a good balance there. I'm, and I must say, <laughs> I chuckled as I uh, was heading back to the office after popping out for uh, some lunch earlier, and uh, saw somebody on a you know one of the the e scooters that you rent, and they, yeah they were going at a reasonable pace, and uh, on the handlebars attached was the helmet. On the head was, was nothing, uh, and I just thought this was this was a topic you know we talked about on the NZ Tech podcast, sort of in the in the early days of these e scooters coming along, and and those sort of safety risks was well, can't they you know modify the technology so that it uh, uh, you know there can be a helmet attached and they can keep a track of whether the helmet's there or not? They're not just going to all get stolen if they if they do it right, surely. And well, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but uh, you know, uh, you can't, you know, force everyone to uh, necessarily wear the helmets. So, uh, anything else you wanted to squeeze in there, Vincent? Well, I see that there's um, the Guardian are predicting that there's a rush to create the Uber. Ah, uh, sorry, the um, the Netflix of games. So, is there is there one company that's going to rule the ball to be the ultimate subscriber of games and gaming? I don't know. It's so competitive, and it's so it's it's a very cool market to watch. Mm. The, you know the competition, and I I think gaming is probably an example of 
of um, um, you know capitalism at its best. You know, making making stuff that's just innovative and exciting and dynamic. I guess there's an argument to say if you're a small game developer, you don't get a look in because it's owned by the big guys. But I th- I think um, there are ways to be able to you know as we do move to these subscription uh, models, and of course even Netflix is is offering games um, you know in in some markets. Um, you know, Microsoft has been, you know, a number of years into uh, uh, building their Xbox Game Pass. Uh, you know, it's been about four years now. And it was interesting, uh, Sony, who said there's no way we could afford just to put everything on a subscription, are now doing uh, okay. exactly exactly that and, you know, <clears throat> move, moving to a, a subscription type uh type offering so i do think that we have some pretty interesting uh times ahead with uh with gaming and uh you know those who were maybe on the more extreme end in terms of what they spent on games will will you know potentially find that their spend comes down a little bit those maybe who would spend a little bit less they they might end up uh better off but of course i'm sure there will be ways to squeeze more money uh out of folks and uh as we move to this kind of metaverse type uh world and uh there's going to be more things that we can we can buy and acquire uh in our in our digital world so uh probably the spend will will keep going up and in fact you know one thing that probably helps it go up is the is the simplicity of of a subscription type model Mm. Mm. let's talk about digital twins next time that's All right. fascinating. Yeah. I love that should. stuff. Yeah. Good, good. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks, Vincent. Great to uh, catch up. Now, where should people go if they want to uh, subscribe to your incredible podcast, This Climate Business? Well, if you go this climate business, three words, dot com, you'll go to the landing page and you, you will see, I think, the top well, the last 10 episodes. But also, if you just go to this climate business on any of your favorite podcast platforms you will find there the entire archive of i think we're now up to sort of 89 or it might even be doing 90 this week of conversations with great new zealanders who are bringing solutions to the climate crisis fantastic thank you vincent and of course people can catch you on twitter uh you've also got the website the feed that they can check out so um, but it's it's definitely worth um, following following Vincent on uh, on Twitter if this is the the sort of thing you want to keep up to date on and uh, yeah he uh, certainly knows knows his uh, knows his stuff and uh, is often sharing um, some you know pretty insightful things so thank you Vincent. Well, thank you Paul that's very nice thanks for having me on the show oh, always always a pleasure we uh, we mustn't leave it quite so long next time and thanks everyone for uh, for joining us on the NZ Tech podcast again. Uh, this week and of course a big thank you to Vocus, Vodafone, Spark, HP and Guerrilla Technology for their uh, support. All right, that's us. We'll catch you all again next week. See ya. The New Zealand Tech Podcast brought to you by Guerrilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.